Welcome to the next episode of Strategy in Perspective. Hello, I'm Anand Nand Kumar, an Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the Indian School of Business and the Executive Director of Srinidhaju Center for Information Technology and the Networked Economy. In this series of podcasts, I will attempt to theoretically frame phenomena that we've recently read about in the popular press. And here is why I'm doing this experiment. Most of us view theories as being far removed from reality and practice. Theories are nonetheless important to structure phenomena that we see and hear around us so that managers like yourselves can subsequently alter the parameters of the theory perhaps to make better and more appropriate managerial decisions. By doing so, my goal is not only to highlight the importance of theory to practicing managers, but also point out to academics the areas in which theory and academic literature might actually lag behind practice. Let's talk about a topic that might be directly related to the objective of these podcasts. This is about the generalizability of theory across a broad array of industries and even geographical contexts. And this podcast perhaps will relate more to the latter rather than to the former. While for something to be a theory, universal applicability or generalizability is an important precursor, it's not clear whether all theories actually fit this bill. So what is the role of the context in strategic decision making? So let me start with a bunch of stories as I always do. These stories are from the popular press that I've essentially revisited. Recently, for example, the Fortune magazine reported that China's state administration for market regulation, SAMR, announced that Tesla would recall about 285,000 Model 3 and Model Y cars in China because of a software glitch that could enable passengers to accidentally activate autopilot. Contrary to what we might believe, China initially embraced Tesla with open arms by offering it cheap land, loans, tax benefits, and even subsidies. It even allowed Tesla to run its own plant without a local partner, a first for a foreign automaker in China. Tesla perhaps decided to return the favor by opening up all its patents not only in the US but also in China so that competitors can actually use it to manufacture automobile vehicles, electric automobile vehicles by themselves. To be sure, Tesla didn't actually open source its patent but rather promised not to sue anyone who uses its patents in good faith to make electric vehicles. Another magazine called Electrek, right, this is a magazine that focuses on electric automobile vehicles in an article in 2020 reported that Tesla accused Xping, a Chinese electric vehicle startup, of stealing some of its intellectual property. In fact, in 2019, Tesla initiated a suit against Guangzi Shikao, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, a former autopilot engineer who quit to join Xping's autonomous driving team. In that lawsuit, Tesla claimed that Kao downloaded the source code to his personal device before leaving the company, which is Tesla, and he sold it to Xpeng before joining Xpeng itself. Although Xpeng's P7 models was quite different from Tesla's cars, P7's autopilot interface, however, looked quite similar to the one of Tesla's. One can't help but think whether the issue of recall 
and that of Xpeng that we are talking about are somehow related in some way. Let's dive a bit deeper into open source patents before commenting on Tesla's strategy. First, a patent is a type of intellectual property that enables its owner to legally exclude others from making, using, or even selling an innovation for a limited period of time. By open sourcing patents, its owners are simply allowing third parties to use such patented technologies at no cost. In a famous blog post, Elon Musk, Tesla's founder, announced in 2014 that, quote, all our patents are belong to you, unquote. The logic behind the strategy was to encourage industry innovation and the advancement of electric vehicle technology and a larger industry will somehow eventually also benefit Tesla in the longer term. Tesla, by the way, is not the only company to adopt this strategy. In 2019, Toyota announced that it would allow others to use its 24,000 patents that were related to hybrid car technology, which would be available for licensing royalty-free until 2030. What's more is that Toyota will also offer consultation services for a fee. Again, the logic behind this strategy was that by increasing the speed of transition from fossil fuel cars to electric vehicles, Toyota will inevitably benefit in the long term. Coming back to Tesla, the strategy of Tesla to open source its patents was a big hit with the analysts. Analysts, of course, most of them from the US, hailed Tesla's strategy as a stroke of genius. And here's the reason why. Let's say a competitor wanted to OEM Tesla's patented technology. To do so, it must agree to Tesla's patent pledge, which requires, among other things, that the OEM maker or the competitor agrees that it will not sue Tesla of patent infringement nor challenge the validity of any of Tesla's patents. Simply put, or put in another way, the patent pledge provides the right to competitors to use Tesla's technology. But it also provides Tesla immunity from being sued by any of its competitors should Tesla had infringed their competitors' patents. Therefore, one benefit that might accrue to Tesla is that it would be able to exploit its competitors' technology without spending time or even money trying to gain access to their technology. Sure, that's a stroke of a genius indeed and will likely work in several countries in which intellectual property protection is quote-unquote strong. But what about China? Let's come back to China. Well, China's record, according to many reports, is not that solid when it comes to protecting intellectual property. Even, for example, as late as in April 2022, according to the New York Times, the Office of the United States Trade Representative criticized China, among other countries, for continuing to fall short on promises that were made to protect intellectual property. By the way, this list of countries also includes India, but perhaps that's a story for later. Although China amended its laws to strengthen its intellectual property protection, intellectual property owners, mainly in the US and perhaps Europe, have continued to feel that intellectual property protection in China is in fact inadequate. The New York Times article that I spoke about claims that the Chinese government or even some of its officials 
continue to make statements that suggest that the intellectual property protection system in China serves the need of domestic innovation and it's a strategic resource for Chinese competitiveness abroad. In fact, a report from the Office of the United States Trade Representative asserted that China remains the largest single source of counterfeit and pirated goods ranging from electronics to health equipment. Where does that leave us? Sure, Tesla's strategy of open sourcing its patents was a stroke of a genius if governments and competitors quote-unquote respected patent rights and IP protection. But does the same strategy to open source its patents that was a huge success or at least the analysts hailed it as a huge success, did that make sense in China? To the extent that Xpeng's story highlights the inability of Tesla to protect its innovations, did the strategy that was hailed as a smart move in the US actually make sense in China? Let's think about it. And my take is that perhaps not. This story highlights an important aspect that strategists often underestimate, that the context in part determines the success of a strategy. Tarun Kanna, a respected scholar in strategy, says that, quote, trying to apply management practices uniformly across geographies is a fool's errand. Context does matter for strategy. Countries differ significantly culturally, administratively, geographically, and economically, so much so that contextual intelligence is crucial to determining which set of analytical tools or even strategic frameworks might apply in a given country context. The notion of cultural differences includes, for example, differences in languages, religions, or even such things as social values and norms. Administrative differences include whether countries are a part of trading blocks, whether they share a common currency, political stability and the like. Geographical distance includes differences such as physical distance, lack of access to ports, differences in time zones, climate and the like. Finally, economic distance includes things such as economic size, the distribution of wealth, poverty, and the presence of natural or financial or even human resources, or for that matter, even knowledge. And this is the famous CAGE framework that is typically used by strategists while coming up with decisions in different countries. Businesses that are successful in one country invariably have tightly woven business and operating models that tightly fit that country. This is why sometimes companies find it very difficult to adapt themselves to other countries. So if you look around, you could find lots of examples such as that of Walmart in China or Walmart, for example, even in India. Managers and strategists might often have to tweak their business models and operating models so that they fit a different environment. And this is often a very complicated problem to solve simply because these adaptations will also have to fit the company's capabilities as well as resources. This kind of explains why context actually matters for strategy and the success of a set of strategic decisions. As always, there are several open questions and like it's the case most of the time, I may not have the time to address most of these. But here are a few nonetheless. How should firms go about deciding which strategic frameworks apply in a given context? 
In the event that operating and business models dramatically vary across contexts, how should firms go about integrating these so that the benefits of scale and scope economies can be reaped by these companies? How much strategic planning and execution needs to be done centrally at the headquarters, for example, versus at different contexts, right, in the different country context itself? How much autonomy should be given to local managers relative to the managers at the headquarters? But for now, I hope the idea that the likely success of a strategy is context-specific provides enough food for thought for you to think about and maybe initiate conversations about these issues. Thank you for listening.